Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Simon Luxury, and as you've probably already gathered, I'm trying out some pseudonyms to see if I can separate the mystical type stuff I do from the other stuff I'm doing probably much too late, uh, but worth a try. And if it doesn't work, you know, having a bunch of pseudonyms on the show seems like it'll be fun, you know? Um, Simon Luxury, that's a fun name. Wichita Cruz, uh, Plutarch Rash, you know, the, the possibilities are endless. Today I have a wonderful conversation to bring you. I So for the first time, pivotal work of magic, mysticism, and astrology in the Arabic and Islamic traditions. The Shams al-Ma'arif, the son of knowledge, for the first time, Al-Buni's incredibly important and influential work has been translated into English. Not the whole thing, mind you, it is about... it is huge. So like a very sizable chunk, a 300-page translation, is now available for you from Revelor Press, and I got to talk to the two minds behind this edition. I am so pleased. That is Amina Inlows, who did the translation, and J.M. Hamedi, who did art and commentary, and it was a fabulous chat. I'm so happy to bring it to you. So I talked to them for about two hours, and what we have here is about a little shy of an hour and a half of that conversation, so if you want the full thing, just stop listening to this right now, head over to the Patreon, that's where it is, in full, or if you get to the end of this conversation, the end of this episode, and you're like, you know what, I want to get that missing bit that, you know, uh, Simon Luxury, as he's now calling himself, excised from the center of the conversation, then just, you know, go to the Patreon and skip ahead to... 1 hour 6 minutes 54 seconds. And you'll be able to pick up where uh, the conversation leaves off. You know, there's a kind of a musical cue. You'll know where you'll know where it is. So without further ado, here's my wonderful chat. For sake of background, uh, Amina Inlows has a PhD in Islamic Studies from the University of Exeter, and her past publications include being one of the translators on Spiritual Mysteries and Ethical Secrets, and she also put out, uh, among other publications, an article, The Queen of Sheba in Shia Hadith. Which is very fun. Uh, J.M. Hamedi is a talismanic artist, a florist, a diviner, a writer, an educator, and his past work has appeared in Conjure Codex 4, which if you don't have it yet, why not? What's stopping you? So here's that chat, which was an absolute joy to do, and I hope a pleasure for you to hear. This book, congratulations. It is a joy to look at it. It is a joy to behold it. It is a joy to finally hold a copy of it in my hands because it came two days ago, and I am incredibly pleased. So going way back to the prehistory of the book, of this edition, what brought you two together? Was it this project, or did you know each other beforehand? It was fate. Ooh. The hand of fate. Yes! I hear some people blame some things on Saturn, so maybe it was Saturn and <laughs> Like Which I'm not exaggerating, fate. because we did start it uh, fairly shortly before the famed conjunction yeah. in a shift of uh, elements. That's true. Keep coming back to that. But you had mentioned that previously, and I I, I didn't think about that, but that is... I, I actually think it is a relevant piece of timing. Totally. Um, it's not like this book has suddenly come out of nowhere. I mean, it's been around since the 13th century, and... 
people have, dis you know, it, there are translations of it worldwide and in the English speaking world, um, which these days encompasses a rather lot of countries. I mean, there's places in Africa where English is a dominant language and, you know, India post the colonial era and so forth. So I, I'm using that term very broadly. Yeah. Uh, it has been discussed and the idea was thrown around that, that it would be good to translate it. And there are various attempts to do it. It's just never really uh, managed to take off. And I do feel like there was a sort of opening in the subject area around the time of aforementioned conjunction. And all of a sudden, I would say a real spike of interest worldwide, uh, which these days the Internet facilitates in the subject area. And it was just the right time. And, and things sometimes happen at the right time. So you, Jay, I'm ascribing you to fate. What do you uh, think? <laughs> and, and to that, the last time that Jupiter and Saturn were conjoining or about to conjoin in air signs was Albuni's time. Yep. So, but I, I, on my end, almost two years ago now, I taught a class on lunar mansions at the Salem Summer Symposium and Amina took the class or the material that I was pulling from was a Spanish translation of Albuni's Shams and Ma'arif, the text we're talking about today. And Amina took the class and reached out to me pretty much 15 minutes after the class ended with tons of enthusiasm, introduced herself and was like, I really want to translate this book. And pretty much since then, uh, mostly... Mostly me riding on her coattails and brilliance and enthusiasm. Um, we've been working pretty diligently and, and now it's published and we're both excited about it. But yeah, immediately after the class, she was like, I want to do this. We should we should do this. Yeah. To be fair, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a we. Uh, it is helpful to have someone else and uh, motivation is definitely priceless. And it's nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of and uh, so forth. So I, I think it really did work out well as a partnership. Yeah, yeah. and it ended up becoming this big team project. And um, it's Revelor Press, the publisher, Joseph Uccello did a wonderful job on the book design and the cover. Al Cummins and Jen Zart were part of the editing process. It was a huge team effort. And I think just between Amina and myself, Amina as a scholar, a PhD in Islamic studies, is just the kind of person who's capable of of handling a text of this size when it comes to translation in a way that I would just frankly never be able to. But I like that we can come come to it together because she can handle those things. I can approach it in my own weird art brain. And you know what I mean? So someone is taking care of the more scholarly side of it so you can kind of do your thing. And the team effort allows for that and allows for a, a more all-encompassing text. Definitely. So it it had to be a grand conjunction of minds. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Incredible. Um, and actually speaking of like, because it is a daunting task. And actually this is even, this is what, 300 pages of something that normally clocks in around like 1,200 pages or so. I think a full translation of uh, the printed edition, because manuscript editions tend to vary quite widely in how long they are, but there is a printed book called Shams al-Ma'arif. I think that would be at least 1,600 pages in English, maybe up to 2,000 pages. This is just an estimate. So it is a, a, a piece, but there is more. So I guess two-part question. Why this piece in particular out of all of that huge 
treasure trove of material and also like is there going to be a volume two volume three volume four two i'm having trouble doing the math of, of how do you get to 1600 by 300 but you know more volumes let's say what are we hiding jay should we tell them what we're not telling <laughs> so many <them>? things what do you keep your secrets what are you keeping from me? I, I just want to say quickly that almost immediately after the book was released, before it even got uh, in people's mailboxes, people were messaging me like, oh, this is so great. I'm so happy you did this. Where's the rest of it? Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily in a, in, no in a demanding way, but like they hadn't even received the actual text, like what we did. And they're already asking where the rest of it is or when the rest of it is going to come out. I'm sure Mina can speak more to that. Uh, yeah, I've gotten a lot of messages like that, too, um, which, which is nice. It's good to have more motivation and to know people are interested in uh, whatever might end up comprising of uh, the whole thing. Yeah, as, as for why we did do this section, it, it was sort of an organic process. Um, we started at the beginning uh, and then at some point, um, right before there's a chapter jump, the text shifts into, first of all, there's some really, well, I don't want to be disrespectful to the text, but there's some nightmarish esoteric cosmology. I, I mean, it, it's very difficult, in my opinion, to make sense of it. And the end of the chapter actually says it's written in some sort of cipher or code, and it really doesn't make sense. That section is not actually in a lot of manuscripts, and I would have been fine just kicking it out, but it is in the printed edition, so I feel like it would have to stay just to keep up the continuity. Uh, but that seemed like a good place to stop because I didn't want to horrify the reader, apart for some readers who do like some uh, incredibly esoteric cosmologies. Uh, and then after that, the text starts to require uh, a really good background knowledge of the Arabic language and also the Quran. Uh, and I tried to make this volume as accessible as possible. As you can see, there's uh, a lot of notes in the text. So I, I tried to make it as accessible to people who don't speak Arabic as possible so they can still interact with it. Uh, but at that point, it's just sort of a point of diminishing returns. So we thought that that thematically might fit into something else, that, that there is a, a sort of thematic cohesion to this volume. Uh, and then if there is a volume two, it, it would be centered on that. Uh, and then as for the remaining sections on that, uh, the talismans was just a, a random intuition. It, it was my idea. I, I just felt it was the right thing to include and, and went with that. Uh, and as for the Ring of Solomon, um, that's because it, it is something that's discussed a fair amount in the English speaking community currently. So that's there for those people who have an interest in that specifically. So those who know will know why and those who don't know <clears throat> will. But that in brief is that. So it wasn't necessarily an intent to, to remove anything, but it's just that this is how it progressed. And then when we got to 100,000 words, we figured that's a good size for a book too. You know, I mean, a nonfiction tends to max out around 100,000 words unless you've got a really good big book. And then you start to have issues, issues with binding and shipping and so forth. And also, I know everyone says they want the whole thing. And I completely get it. I want to see it too. But I'm not sure how many people really want the whole thing. It's yes. like, are you going to read an, a book on interesting words in English or are you going to read a 20 volume dictionary? <laughs> I mean, seeing the whole thing in front of you can be a little bit intimidating. Uh, so I, I do think there is a, a virtue to, to chunks just for usability. Uh, and then there was just also the time factor that to finish something five times as long, at least, what would have probably taken about five years or so. Uh, and people were wanting it then. So I figured also it's better just to start releasing and to have something uh, instead of to have nothing, because I, I kind of feel like that's 
one of the reasons why the translation project didn't work out until now by other people, because there's some very qualified people who are working on it, and they, they certainly have the personal capability to do it, but life has a tendency to happen, and you have to make a living, people have family issues, etc. Uh, and I think maybe uh, I didn't want to fall into that trap of having such a big goal and not being able to fulfill it, but to have a more manageable goal and to have a measurable result seemed to me a better way to go. And then if there is more, that would be good too. Yeah, I think that the size of the text is is definitely one of the more obvious reasons people who, as Amina said, are extremely well qualified, uh, have have made attempts, but also tried to do it all in, in one fell sweep. And that is that is daunting for anybody. I think for people who perhaps are less qualified, but the interest might still be there, the language is just extremely difficult as well. I, I remember a few years back sending parts of it to native Arabic speakers just to get a feel for what their translations of it might be. And most people were pretty confused by it. Once again, you're talking about medieval Arabic. You're talking about very dense, esoteric, metaphysical language, right? So, I mean, if you're not a scholar, you're not extremely familiar with this sort of thing, and you're just like, I want to do this because I know Arabic and more of these texts should be translated, it's, it's still daunting unto itself. I think those two th- those two things are definitely a factor, the language and the size of the text. But I also, and I don't want to try to read too much into people's motivations who have attempted to translate it into English, but I, I kind of get a sense that, I, I sort of get a sense that there's a weight of responsibility around the text and that some people in going through it have come to the conclusion that people approaching it in English aren't necessarily going to appreciate the nuances, the intricacies, um, the deep wisdom that the text has to offer, as well as the context that it would typically be engaged with in. So, you know, with a teacher, perhaps in a Sufi order, this kind of thing, that some people, as they're maybe beginning the process of, of translating it, they might be like, I don't know if your average English reader is going to really appreciate this for what it is, and then perhaps they might pull back. That's just, that. that's me reading into it. I, you know, no one has ever told me that, but I sort of get a sense that that might be the case. Anyways. That's a really interesting point, because I think, you know, that is the trouble, or one of the great challenges of translation is that you can translate a book, but you can't translate the context. You can't translate everything that is connected to the book. The environment sort of has to stay there so like it'd be impossible to sort of like fully delineate that here but like just for broad strokes like when this book was first written what is the context in which it was written what is the context in which it was read like who was reading this what were they using it for if i answer that i'm going to be answering just based on my impression of the situation because i'm not sure how much historical record we have of that uh, okay. Apart from actually tracing the appearance of various manuscripts, which I'm sure people have done, and they could perhaps see the geographical spread of it and so forth. But the book was compiled in North Africa. Um, Albuni, the one to whom it's attributed to, was born in today's Algeria uh, and passed away in today's Egypt. So not terribly far from each other. Uh, people did actually tend to move around a lot uh, back in the day. Uh, but still in North Africa, which uh, by that time had been integrated into the broader Arab-Islamic civilization. 
empires had come and gone. So this is sort of the tail end of what is sometimes considered the uh, golden age of the Arab Islamic civilization. And some people consider that to be a problematic term. Uh, I'm going to leave that aside. But, you know, one can sense that there was a lot going on. And one thing that um, might bear mentioning is that this starts to be a period of, to my understanding, the consolidation of the tradition. That is to say, um, a lot of the formative works, uh, for example, in the Arabic slash Islamic hate astrology happened probably around the 9th or 10th century, as well as some of the more formative occult texts or the, um, for example, some of you may be familiar with Liana Saif, who does a lot of excellent research in this area. You know, she says the pseudo-hermetic corpus was probably written around the 9th or 10th centuries. Whereas here we're getting to the 13th century, so, so there's things that have been agreed upon. And so the text isn't necessarily breaking ground with things like what is our astrological worldview going to be, but rather it's just putting down the things that might be important for the reader. Uh, instead, this is more of a time of the flourishing of mysticism, perhaps due to some of the instabilities of the era, the rises and falls of empire, uh, the changes at the time. Not to belabor the point, but since it's already been mentioned that, at least from a planetary perspective, we, we are in a sort of similar era today with the uh, Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in air. Presumably some of the changes around that time might uh, be mimicked in our lifetimes or, or slightly afterwards, just the, the breakdown of the old order, the building of the new order. Uh, but in any case, um, this book is representative of a tradition that, that did predate it. It depends on how you want to see things, how far you want to predate it. I mean, do you want to predate some things to ancient times uh, or local practices or, or just predating it to what was going on in the Arabic speaking slash Islamic world with, for example, the use of magic squares and letters and so forth. And then the traditions continued uh, since then. I, I mean, as a living tradition, it, it is practiced, as far as I know, everywhere where Islam has spread regardless of whether or not it's a native Arabic-speaking country, just because the Arabic language tends to follow Islam because it's uh, you know heavily used in devotional practices. And also in Eastern Europe, I'm not quite sure to what degree there is a, a religious boundary, that there's some similar stuff in, in Eastern Europe, some of which was part of the Ottoman Empire, so you still have that connection. But I'm not quite sure how, how porous the boundaries are. So as a tradition, it's spread, and it is considered to be the central book of the tradition. But I'm not exactly sure how that actually played about, out like on a century by century basis. That would be an interesting thing to consider, however. I, I think the, the text is pretty eclectic, not only in itself, but in the ways that people have come to it in the larger Muslim world. I, I, I would say if I'm thinking about it in a traditional context, like this, I, I enjoy this notion that uh, Albuni scholar Noah Gardner talks about how the content of the text might be taught from master to apprentice or student in the in the Cairo necropolis. So Albuni would be teaching this inside one of the cemeteries near to the tombs of the saints, right? Old old Sufi masters uh, in a in a similar way that music is still, uh, you know, music and prayer is still brought in Sufi orders uh, into the context of cemeteries near to the tombs of Sufi masters. So this is the way that the pedagogy would unfold in more the typical context. So it, it isn't always necessarily at a cemetery, but with 
a teacher to a student in this kind of way. So, so that you have a guide through this. Um, and, and that's typically how esoteric material has been passed down. I think in most traditions, I, I frankly think that it's only in more modern and contemporary times that we've become more and more detached from that. But um, I think in most traditions, what we would call esoteric material is passed on from teacher to student. But when I when I say eclectic, I also mean that people might approach the text purely from the standpoint of what would be called sihr or or even just sorcery or magic for personal gain, wherein someone could have the text and open it up to look for a spell to get a certain result. There's no greater esoteric interpretation or spiritual unfolding that's happening with it. Someone is simply, you know, using a book that has magical credentials to get what they want. So the book, I mean, as well as having this very vast and intricate cosmology tied into Islam and Sufism, also might very well be picked up as a book of of sorcery and magic. And and you see things, I talked about this in, in my introduction to the text, you see, you know, smatterings of Mediterranean uh, magics all the way from, you know, what you'd find in the Greek magical papyri to um, you know, Jewish magic, so on and so forth, in, in the text itself. Uh, I, I tend to focus on the, the lunar mansions and how you find a lot of that same magic in the Greek, patri- Greek uh, magical papyri and the prayer to Mene, and this philosophy of the lunar mansions being related to sound, I find particularly interesting. But yeah, it's a it's definitely eclectic in that way. And people have approached it in in many different manners. For like a contemporary reader, right? Who's, you know, as we've been saying, divorced from this context of having someone to partner with in pedagogy and potentially also removed from the context of being like I mean, there are graveyards everywhere, but with Sufi saints, not so much. You never know. But like <laughs> never know. That is fair. Um, but like for like a contemporary reader who's picking up this edition, should they be like, how do you perceive them approaching it? Like what, what can they sort of, what should they seek to get out of it? Is it, is it a similar sort of like, you know, I need a spell for this. I'm going to look at this and maybe the esoteric will start to filter in. Or is there another sort of way that you think that people should seek what this offers? I've been thinking more and more about this notion of the sun, or the symbol of the sun. We're like, oh, it's it's the it's the Shams al-Ma'arif, it's the the Shams, the sun of knowledge. And like, oh, what what is what is the sun a reference to? And I think it's many different things to many different people, like most esoteric information or content. It doesn't have a a single meaning to it, right? But I more and more I'm coming to this personal unfolding that I think is possible in in people engaging with the text respectfully, not necessarily um, with or without a teacher. I, I do believe that a text of this magnitude, a text of this kind is is definitely best approached with a guide. Like still to this day, I, I think it's best approached with someone who knows the text 
who can help guide you through it. Um, even as you're you're going through it, someone who you can bounce things off of who's knowledgeable in that way. But that could also be a, a group of, of trusted friends who are working through it as well with you. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone in a particular tradition. So I, I just want to say that I do think it, it still is best work through in that way. But I also think that there's a potential for a kind of personal unfolding and, and a very personal engagement with the text as well. And the sun being a symbol of like, you know, I guess in the West, what we might call selfhood or the expression of, of oneself. I know self is a loaded term, but you sort of get what I'm get what I'm saying, like an expression of one's uh, individuality. And I think that approaching the text in that manner is very much possible and that it's going to look different for everybody. Um, I, I mean, and I had talked briefly in a previous podcast about like um, people coming to her and saying, oh, is this is this text halal? You know, is this text like, is it safe? Is it OK? You know, and and I think that's sort of for each individual to decide for themselves, because Islam is not homogenous by any means. You know, it, there's no point in it, it behooves us to fall into that stereotype for any religion or or, or any group. But um, it is not homogenous. And I think every person can come to this and have their own individualistic relationship. And I think the sun as a symbol lends itself to that. Yeah, I, I agree. And thank you for bringing up the symbolism, which is a glaringly apparent part of the book. I'm, I'm trying to avoid uh, any sort of pun there, but it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's a, a brilliant aspect of the book, uh, you know, both esoterically and, you know, with, with the physical concordant of that. I mean, nothing that has power is safe. Electricity is extremely dangerous and no one who's sane is going to let a three-year-old kid touch live wires in the house. Uh, but of course, most of us prefer to use electricity when it's done in a way that makes it usable. So I would say the same thing is true for any sort of esoteric or spiritual power. So in case anyone is wondering, uh, no, I wouldn't necessarily say it is safe quote unquote, but I, I think most worthwhile pursuits in life aren't really safe. I mean, mountain climbing certainly isn't safe, but it's considered an accomplishment. I heard they're planning to send people to the moon again. That's definitely not safe, but to, you know, it, it's a sort of accomplishment. Oh. Uh, and so it's just a question of what risks in life are appropriate for one's goals and what one perceives as one's path in life or, or one's needs. I mean, I think those are the two reasons why people tend to come to this sort of thing. Either it's, it's a calling, maybe a lifelong calling, ancestral calling, and, you know, learning the secrets of the universe, or just you're desperate and you've tried everything else, and so, so you need to try something else to sort out your situation. But um, that does get into the overall question of who it was written for, and at least with respect to my place in it, I, I tried to make it accessible to different groups of people, maybe uh, at the risk of flattering us, uh, me and Jay. Maybe that's one of the reasons this has uh, been able to come to this point so far, um, rather than trying to restrict it to just one group of people and say, these are the rightful owners of the text and, you know, no one else really has anything to do with it. I mean, I understand that because it is a big work and, and a prominent work, there are different people who are going to look to it for different reasons. You know, things ranging from academics. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, that it has been 
uh, circulated in the academic communities just among people who do like to do textual studies and uh, so far I've gotten good feedback. I'm just I put out there pleasantly surprised because we did make the intentional decision not to publish with an academic publisher. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is that they tend to price things uh, out of the price range of normal people. Uh, and while that may reflect the worth of a book, we wanted it to be more accessible financially. Uh, and also some of the commentary I wouldn't have been able to put in there with a lot of academic publishers because it is a bit more with respect to what happens on the ground as opposed to just, well, this manuscript says this word and this manuscript says that word. And you kind of pick something up with tongs and you know study it from your quote unquote objective lens. Uh, that just didn't feel right to me with this. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it is an arena where it might be of interest. Uh, also, people who do want to use it uh, for devotional purposes, because some Sufi groups do uh, revere the book, which is to a degree somewhat unusual among Muslims and that it's not, um, you know, a lot of Muslims are afraid of it and just don't want anything to do with it. But some Sufi orders, in general, Sufism tends to be a bit more uh, sympathetic to this sort of work. You know, so, so they'll maybe see it from a devotional perspective. And for some people, it's just, uh, the practical use. And uh, for me personally, I'm again not trying to make any sort of judgment or, or restriction. Some people, how should I put this? Esoteric activities in this context tend to be divided into two spheres. There's the sort of mystical, uh, theurgical side, as it tends to be called these days, the, you know, esoteric calling on God and the divine power. I'm what they call Rohaniyat. Uh, that's a technical term for it. Uh, and then some people uh, sort of divide other things into what is called sihr, which is perhaps inappropriately translated into English as magic. But the, you know, one can, one can say that the unclean spirits and maybe a little bit more malefic or more self-serving sort of thing. Uh, I, I'm not trying to make a distinction about who the book is useful for. It, it's just there. And I've tried to keep multiple groups of people in mind. Exactly. As Amina said, we wanted it to be accessible to as broad a range as possible. You know, me once again, the the teamwork effort on it that scholars could look at it, that um, you know, academics from that lens can approach it, uh, and then from my end, really hoping that artists and creative people, in particular people with a uh, you know a Muslim background, Muslim ancestry, who are interested in art, esotericism, magic, can look at it as well without necessarily being you know, scared away by. By, uh, by footnotes and citations and things like that. But I, I also think that, and it's better, better to, I just mentioned this from the very beginning, which is that, and, and Amina mentioned it briefly, but in many parts of the world, the text is either banned or looked down upon, frowned upon heavily. And, and that has been much of the history of the text in, in many parts of the world. You know, Muslim countries in particular, of course. And I think it's important for us to give weight to that. I don't think that that's something that we should just skirt over. I think it's important that we we feel the gravitas of, of what that is because we feel, and, and this kind of, not, not, to, not to rant, uh, but rant, you know, in, 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 <laughs> in people messaging me immediately after you know, just asking where the rest of the text is, that kind of question. I appreciate the interest, of course, in the book, but I also think that there is a certain level of entitlement, frankly, in, in the Anglosphere, in the Western world around not just 
this material, but esoteric and magical material, or perhaps even things in general. And I think that one of the ways we can we can curb that is by remembering, keeping at the forefront of our mind that this is a controversial text. This is something that people could do do jail time for potentially in parts of the world. This is a, a serious offense for many. And I think that that deserves a, not only respect for the text itself and, and the weight it has, and for all those who have like made that effort on their own lives to engage with the text in other parts of the world, but also how us as privileged people in the English-speaking world can approach the text with more respect, especially if you don't have this as like an ancestral ethnic religious background, right? Like if you're looking for ways to approach the text in a respectful manner, I think remembering that it has this weight to it that people have uh, in some sense given up their lives to even deal with the text um, should always be at the forefront. And I don't think that that's uh, as some people, as I've seen in certain YouTube comments, have likened that to a kind of like excessive political correctness or leftism or something like that, which is like, come on, that's in the post 911 era, especially in this in the United States. I don't want to hear anything like that when engaging yeah. with with this material. That's just absurd to me, frankly. But no, I, I don't think it's that at all. I, I think it's it's just a matter of respect. And even from practical engagement, even trying to do the magic in a more efficacious way, things will work out better in doing this magic if you respect it. So even if you want to look at it purely from that perspective, things will go better for you in this context. The more of that weight that that you are, uh, you know, acknowledging. Absolutely. And I just want to say uh, for anyone who's listening, the book hasn't been out long enough for us to know what countries uh, it can't be shipped to, just in terms of, of censorship and customs. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of the Arab Middle East, there is a lot of censorship these days. It is largely political uh, and to some degree non-dominant Islamic uh, sects. Uh, the literature will tend to be banned. Uh, and then other stuff. So, you know, like my, my friend in Egypt was trying to import, I think, the Goetia or something, and, you know, that got stopped at immigration. So it's not always uh, consistent what is allowed in and not. And, and I'm guessing that because this is in English, if they're not actually flipping through it, it has a better chance of getting through. Uh, just because not everyone who checks the books knows how to speak English or knows how to speak English well. And, and to some degree, it's, you know, with these kinds of things, it, it depends on whether the official is having a bad day. I mean, you've got people in, in these somewhat boring government jobs and they don't have, you know, maybe they don't have the greatest salary. They don't have anything else in life. And, and this is where they're going to exert their power. And that's the same with U.S. immigration and, you know, Egypt immigration and anywhere else. But I'm just saying we haven't actually had feedback about what places it can and cannot go to. One thing I feel like uh, in the Anglophone occult community uh, that isn't necessarily understood about what happens in the Muslim majority world with this subject uh, is that this stuff is widely practiced in the sense that I've personally never been to a Muslim majority country where it isn't practiced. But it's there is a certain social contract. There are places where it is discussed. And there are places where it is not discussed. And I think there's kind of a sense that it has to be all or nothing. Like 
should be able to say whatever you want in public and, you know, put up your Twitter picture. I mean, most people who do this sort of thing don't share their real name and they don't share their photograph. And that's not only due to perhaps legal considerations, because there are anti-magic laws in a number of countries uh, still, uh, but also I think a lot of it just has to do with the, you know, the fact that generally the, the name is the first thing that a person will be targeted with uh, in, in an occult perspective. Uh, and the photograph is considered to be extremely powerful as well. So they'll, they'll use a pseudonym and they won't put their picture online or anything else at the most, maybe a hand or something. Uh, and so there is a, you know, it, it's just understood that this is how it is done. It's understood that you're probably not going to go to the local mosque and, and give a speech about astrology, for example. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you might not be discussing it privately in a home afterwards. And a lot of what actually goes on in a lot of these cultures is done outside of the public sphere. I mean, whether it's business or politics and so forth. And it's not necessarily the same in places like the United States, where there's sort of a sense that everything that's being done is in the public sphere and forthright, even if it's not always. But I'm just pointing out that sometimes one has to adjust things. And many people who work with this stuff also won't uh, identify it as magic uh, per se. I mean, there are people who do advertise to her because that's their job and they want a customer. And, you know, I will curse your enemies. I will destroy your ex-husband or I will, you know, make him come and worship you, etc. But, but that's you know, that, that's their thing and, and they want their customers. But for a lot of people, they'll just say it's, I don't know, spiritual work. Uh, a lot of people will present themselves as herbalists or, I mean, just uh, Amil, worker, is, is a common uh, term. Pakistan also, you know, just like it is in other traditions. Uh, so because so so, sometimes people tell me that they go to a certain place and that they can't find this sort of thing. And it's because they're not necessarily looking in the right ways and they don't have their ears tuned. Uh, exorcists, for example, will sometimes have a good background in this sort of thing. And sometimes they won't. But, you know, once you have a sense of that, then you get an idea of what's going on. As you were working on this book, how much, because like there's like the book itself, right? There's the text. Then there is the tradition behind the text, which we're trailing from the text, like the tale of a comet or something like that. And then there is this sense of responsibility to this community, to these people who, you know, are fighting for the text, are dying potentially for the text. Well, maybe that's going too far, but like potentially getting in trouble for the text. So like when you're doing this translation, how are you sort of, are these specters in the room that you have to kind of hold back a little bit? Or are they things that you really want to incorporate into like the actual translation itself, like to carry across as the kind of, you know, the the words between the words almost? I, I definitely feel like it's important to have a sense of respect to tradition, uh, both past and present. Um, I do see this sort of thing as, as being situated in a historical lineage. Albuni is, is a pivot in that lineage. He is a central figure, but he's not the only figure. He quotes his forebears. There are people who came after him. So definitely it's it's there. I mean, it's not something I, I really gave much thought to, uh, but, but I do think in general, uh, translating any sort of classical work, I, I mean, maybe any work at all, does require, you know, to at least try to maintain that sort of respect and, and to hope it's there. I think, as I mentioned, that the text might be, or the content of the text might be taught in in a cemetery, for example, that it is important to bring in the forebears and the ancestors, although it wouldn't be called that in a, in a Muslim context by and large. And in, in I, I, I think you know to, to bring in the ancestors, I you wouldn't really hear that, or I've never really yeah. heard that. But 
the as as Amina said, the forebears or the al Bayt, the the prophet, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, other prophets like Isa or Jesus, as I'm I'm sure we'll get to. Um, this is something that you would hear. And I think though the dead take on a pretty tenuous place in Islam in general, that this is sort of what you get when it comes to bringing in the ancestors. If you're a Sufi, you have a lineage there in particular. So that would be a, an even more specific version of that. But I think it's important to bring that in when working with the text, albeit a pretty underrepresented part of doing this sort of work. Yeah, it's it, it's something that because it doesn't really get talked about, people skirt, skirt over it. I wrote a little bit about it in my introduction to the text with the 10th lunar mansion, al where in the, the Vedic nakshatra, it would be uh, maga, which has to do with the ancestors. So in that same place, um, it is, is thought of as an accessing point to the ancestors. But when it comes into an Islamic context, a lot of that language goes away. So to, to find some of this stuff, you have to do a little bit of cross-cultural examination to see where it where it comes up in this material once again not like oh these are these are the ancestors and this is how you you do the ancestral work but very much in as i said sufi lineage as well as in the prophets and and in particular the saints actually uh, amina and myself coming from a shia background saints and the sh- and the shrines of saints uh, it that tends to be more halal i think by and large, maybe that's um, a generalization we're, on my part, but <laughs> we're, we're pretty big on our shrines. Yeah, the the, the saint shrines it take on a a large component of the sacred geography there, and the visitation of of the ziyara, the visitation of of saint shrines, and so it's there, but it's not really talked about, but it's there, and so I I, I think once again, it's important to bring in. If you have an access point to that, it should be brought in when working with this kind of text. And in the traditional way that it was taught, I think it was brought in. I guess maybe the difference is that people who are considered saints or great mystics, sometimes just great religious scholars and so forth, aren't really considered to be dead in the way other people are considered to be dead so like if you see a vision of like your teacher's teacher or something it's because he's got this high level and he's very much alive and it is pretty much expected that anyone who's in these things or for that matter in in these traditions and shiism it happens all the time and among sufis and so forth that you're going to be having visions and dreams of these people who came before you and they might come and help you out sometime. You know, you hear all those stories, at least, like someone gives you money when you're desperate and so forth. And then it turns to be turns out to be the neighborhood mystic who died a couple hundred years ago and whatnot. But there is a sort of, I don't want to say schizophrenia, um, but I, I agree. It's something that isn't really talked about or put into words very much. Is there's a sort of difference between that um, octave of life after death and, and the sort of ordinary people who, who pass away. Yeah. Okay, so actually, so I've been, I've, I feel like we should get into some of the content here, too, because I mean, the context is so exciting. I feel like we talk about this forever, and and we should, but we can't. Or we could. I don't know. We could do like a five-part <laughs> interview here. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting too uh, wrapped up in the structure. But let's talk about the dead, actually, because there is necromancy in this text. And I am curious, because like, there's a working here for raising the dead. And 
in that working, does that does that fall more into this idea of like there are some people who are sort of less dead because they are sort of exhausted enough to kind of still be alive? Or are we working with, you know, standard dead people, you know, the dead people you'd meet in the street any day? You know, I'm displaying my bias here because I actually didn't personally identify that as necromancy or really think anything about it at all. It, it just kind of passed through my normal everyday life filter. In fact, uh, in a religious context, I, I came across an Islamic scholar uh, a few days ago, actually, who was just commenting that, you know, it, it's true that Jesus raised the dead, but anyone could do that if they're, you know, very mystically and spiritually developed. <laughs> it's just most people aren't. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That kind of fits into this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I mentioned a few places in the book the standard Islamic belief regarding life after death, just because that does help to contextualize it. It is believed that after you die, you go into like a sort of holding place or intermediate place called the Barzakh. And then at the end of time, then that's destroyed and, and the world is destroyed and then people go to heaven or hell. Which incidentally, um, I, I suspect there is probably some sort of uh, historical link to the uh, the idea of the Bardo, for example, in Tibet. And a lot of times we like to put up this wall between the end of the Muslim majority world and then you know the Buddhists and so forth but you know people have obviously been integrate or interacting for centuries and there, there are some clear practices that cross over and especially when you do get to things like mysticism and so forth so from that angle if someone is still there uh, but just not quite here there's just sort of like a veil between our world and where they're doing their life it's not a great maybe stretch to somehow bring them back. Uh, although I, I guess physically after decomposition, that might get a little bit more complicated. But you know, on the one hand, like, I mean, from a theological perspective in, in Islam, like the dead are dead, but they're still somewhat accessible. Like like the Prophet Muhammad, for example, is said to have been able to speak with the dead and the dead to speak back. And generally it's oftentimes held that people who are, you know, very, very pious or very spiritual might have this capacity or, or that the dead might come back to you, for example, and speak in dreams and so forth. And it, it's considered legitimate. So I think, you know, I, I think, I think maybe there are sometimes, okay, let me sort of back up and rephrase this. Some, sometimes in this day and age, uh, due to the challenges of modernity and post-modernity, sometimes we share multiple worldviews, or, or at least I do, uh, like time, for example, like there's one part of my brain that will function with scientific materialist time which is bit linear and every moment is the same length and, and the same quality and five years ago was a really long time ago and there's another part of my brain which is more the time frame that Albuni would have had which is just a sort of eternal sacred present and everything is meaningful and it's sort of a more optimistic worldview and I think we also have worldviews about death and I feel like in a sense in the traditional worldview that Albuni would have had, death isn't necessarily a frightening or creepy or, or scary sort of thing. Uh, like as Jay was mentioning, you know, teaching would happen in graveyards. You know, if someone is buried, for example, by a, a sacred site, or, or I mean, it oftentimes becomes a sacred site, but also just other subjects might be taught there as well. I don't want to speak for all Muslims, but, you know, <laughs> getting into the Shi thing, uh, some people are just quite comfortable with graveyards, like they'll go and have picnics by their ancestors' graves just to say hi and, you know, kind of hang out. So you don't have the sense that the graveyard is a scary place. But when I came to England, I saw these old school 
falling apart churchyards, you know, with the ivy. And, and I posted a couple of the pictures on Twitter just because I thought they're interesting. But it definitely gives you a different sense, like, you know, that's very foreboding and very, very frightening. And so I think sometimes one might be swapping out between different worldviews of death. It's not to say yeah. that Muslims aren't at all afraid of graveyards, but there tends to be more of a sense that it's just because, uh, you know, basically malefic jinn will be inhabiting them. Um, so that kind of attracts the, the less savory type and you might encounter them at the graveyard. So you might be a little bit cautious around the graveyard, but, but not necessarily, I, I think, a sense of the, the frightening sort of thing that you sometimes find, uh, like in you know, like in stories in England, for example. Uh, so, with that in mind, I think that maybe might uh, affect views with respect to what it's like to raise the dead, and is it like zombie raising, or you know, is it just kind of like doing something mystical, and <laughs> the person is back from the barzakh? And I I appreciate the yeah. ambiguity around it. I I do. I think that it's telling. Because, for example, in the text, the section, the spells that Jesus used to raise the dead, or the words of the names that Jesus used to raise the dead, they aren't only for raising the dead. Like, if you if you go to that section, those same words or names are also used for other things, or can be used for other things. So, in some sense, there's also... As, as you'll sometimes see in magical books, like, uh, look how powerful this spell is. He used this spell to raise the dead. But you could also use it for these other things, but it's so powerful that this is what he actually used to raise the dead, which is kind of like pointing to it as it's that powerful, right? So there's there's that element of it, which is very like practical book of magic. Then I think there's perhaps a more esoteric interpretation of who Jesus or Esau was in this tradition, wherein you know, in there's been a lot of debate in Islamic theology about whether Jesus died on the cross or not. There's some who have thought that he there was a substitution that occurred, wherein someone else took the place of Jesus. Uh, and that person was killed instead, or that he was actually um, removed, or that it was a kind of illusion on the Romans that he died, but actually he didn't die. But by and large, Jesus was not thought to have died in the context of of Islam. So that in itself puts Jesus as a, as a prophet, as a figure in the Muslim tradition, in this kind of, uh, as I said, tenuous or uh, ambiguous place when it comes to being alive or dead, which sort of, in, in some sense, you could think of you could think of him as a figure who can better speak to these things, right? Because of that that tenuous place that he takes on. So I find that interesting, and also, um, his, like historically or in in the religion in Christianity, he's thought of as a figure who's bringing peace, but he's also bringing the sword and a kind of rebellion against the status quo as well, knocking over the stands of the money changers. And my mind goes to this place of like, he's also removing this calcified structure to allow for a revivification to happen of of Judaism, of 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 the old religion, right? Like this, these structures have become uh, calcified, 
And so there must be this removal to to bring back the dead to life, right? So that's sort of like a, an esoteric interpretation, but I think there's something there as well. Like this figure, it's not just about literally bringing people back from the dead, but there's also like a removal of calcified structures that allows for things to, to regrow in a healthier way, which is kind of like bringing back the dead in the same way that when we we passionately read the Bible or the Quran, we're also bringing back the dead in a way as well. We're revivifying the tradition uh, with our own voice, with our own breath. Um, I, I, I think that all of that is there. And then I think you can look at it from all of these different interpretations, right? Yeah, and definitely in the Islamic mystical literature, uh, raising the dead is sometimes used as a synonym for reviving dead hearts. So reviving a exactly, death. exactly. And, and, and as you mentioned before, there there are many ways to look at this sort of thing, and any any piece of classical literature will be such because it is open to interpretations uh, ranging from the heavily literal to the more metaphorical, and, and sometimes all of them are intended. And the the term that Amina mentioned, Barzakh, as being this kind of purgatory or this liminal space between life and death. Um, in a lot of the Sufic material, it also kind of takes on qualities of the imagination or is, or is thought to be akin to the imaginal, this divine intermediary between the world of pure spirit and that of matter. And the Barzakh is also considered to be the tomb in a, in a very literal sense. So the grave itself is thought to be uh, Barzakh or a kind of entryway or doorway into the other world. So you can see, as Amina mentioned, how the graveyard doesn't necessarily have to take on this this more this more morbid or foreboding, as she said, quality, because this is also um, a direct access point to the spirit world. Death is a sort of doorway. The grave or the tomb is a kind of doorway, literally and figuratively in this context. Yeah, and just to point out, technically speaking, Muslims don't believe in ghosts. Uh, I do say that technically speaking, because people are going to believe in whatever they believe in, regardless of what they're told the formal theology is. But in general, the standard line is that deceased people move on fairly quickly. I mean, some Muslims might admit for the ghosts to stay around for a week or two, but the idea is you head off to the Barzakh. And so if there's uh, stuff going on, you know, like haunted house stuff, like flying cups or footsteps in the night or whatever, uh, it's jinn. And they might be just any kind of jinn who are messing around, or it might be that the qareen or, or the personal daemon associated with the deceased person who's able to take on their form and who knows a lot about them, but isn't really the person, uh, or maybe some other stuff. Um, but in general, it's not considered to be ghosts. So it, it doesn't tend to be that fear of ghosts in the same way. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, this is a general belief, but people are going to have their own personal viewpoints. I would say in my experience for people who actually practice this sort of thing, that there are some people who do still hold to that view, that they will not uh, admit to ghosts being very present or relevant yeah. to the world, especially, you know, unless it's like very, very close to the time of death. Uh, but, you know, as we all know, people who get into the more esoteric or occult sort of thing, so sometimes you know, develop non-standard theologies. And so, so some people may, may believe in ghosts also. Uh, but that is, at, at any rate, the standard line, which um, the, probably is why there might be a little bit less uh, concern about ghosts per se, because it, it's just the jinn and you got to call the exorcist. 
and the Quran doesn't speak to it that much as well. So, I mean, there there are parts where um, I forget what what part it's in, but um, essentially saying like the dead can't hear you and you can't hear the dead. Um, there's they're, they're speaking to it a, a little bit in, in yeah. certain parts, but by and large, I think it tends to take on or like people's relationship with the dead tends to take on the cultural trappings uh, with the Islamic overlay. Right. So if there was a long history of some kind of ancestor veneration that sort of maintains itself. But the bit about not speaking the, to the dead is oftentimes uh, interpreted as, as to mean you can't speak to someone who has a dead heart because they don't have any spiritual ears to hear you and not necessarily the literal dead. After all, Prophet Muhammad is said to have spoken to the dead at the Battle of Badr. <laughs> Imam Ali spoke to the dead. So, you know, if they could do it, but we can't say that it uh, isn't done. This is a standard sort of theological argument I'm dropping on our poor uh, second person here. <laughs> or first person. <laughs> yeah, and like in a, spir- in a spiritist context, for example, many yeah. Muslims would believe, as Amina said, that it's just the jinn taking on the persona of a person to, to fool around with people, basically. Right. Yeah. That that person Although, has- interestingly, I, I did find out belatedly that uh, European and American style spiritualism did actually come into some parts uh, of the Muslim majority world in the past century. And I guess it was just kind of more interesting because it's European or it was maybe seen as a bit more rational because, you know, there were attempts to, to prove the paranormal and so forth. So I, I guess it was kind of seen as... I don't, like I said, people tend to hold contradictory worldviews uh, quite comfortably and just flip between them as necessary. Yeah, that is, uh, I'm slowly reminded of um, of Hamlet and the idea that, you know, since Hamlet is returning in that, in that story from one of the great Protestant universities of Europe at the time, he should not believe in ghosts at all. Hmm. But he very clearly does. Um, <laughs> well, if he didn't believe in them, he does now. Right. Um, which is also weird because, of course, the ghost is Hamlet. So it's very much talking to his dead self. His father is also. Anyway, this is not important. Um, <laughs> but we have been talking a lot about the djinn. So let's get to the djinn for a minute, because I think a lot of people, a lot of people in the Anglophone sphere, like they hear about the djinn, but they don't really know much about the djinn. And I, I feel like the djinn are not as knowable as like it's sort of like a big question. What are the djinn? What are they like? What's their agenda? But like broad strokes. That's stated. the point. They're not supposed to <laughs> yeah. be knowable. They want to be seen, and that's why they're invisible. I, I mean, literally, the word just means, like, I, I guess, hidden things. It is, it is used very broadly uh, to refer to any sort of invisible being or spirit. I mean, generally, angels are considered to be different. But, you know, technically speaking, you can use the word for angels. It's not normally done, but it, it just means a, a non visible sentient spirit with with free will and intelligence Uh, and the quran mentions they're made of fire so people are made from earth jinn are made from fire so we're made of different stuff Uh, and smokeless fire yeah thank thank you for the clarification (laughs) uh we generally can't see them uh but they generally can see us you know one thing you do notice if you look through the what the quran says about them is that they are treated uh in parallel with human beings to a fair amount um there's a phrase that's 
difficult to translate. It's called Plakalein, the two weighty things, I guess, of creation, which are described as the human beings and the jinn, I guess, because both of us have free will and both of us uh, are said to be subjected to judgment at the end of time and, and go to heaven or hell. Uh, incidentally, from a theological perspective, it is agreed that um, those who go to hell, uh, jinn and humans, go to the same hell, because the Quran mentions that. But it's not agreed if they go to the same heaven. <laughs> do, do the good jinns and humans end up in the same heaven or, or do they each have their own? There have been arguments about that and I will decline to take a position on it. Uh, but that's some of the, the theological perspective. And I don't, like if you do read some parts of the Quran, it's just there's a sense that you're in this together. You, you just have few different things in, in the creation. Uh, so that's a very general perspective. Uh, sometimes people also do use the word to refer specifically to local spirits, uh, if, if you will. I, I mean, I don't want to get all stereotypical into like desert spirits and stuff. Uh, but, you know, there are certain names in the tradition which probably are, are more regional, regional. And then there's the concept of the seven Jin kings, for example, uh, who are alluded to in the book. Um, which is part of the tradition, which are specific kinds of spirit. But the word jinn itself is actually quite broad. I, I think it's good to talk about this subject coming off of talking about the dead. And I guess what we would call spiritism or spiritualism, as we were sort of touching on, uh, because at least from my perspective, I like approaching it through the context of czar, which is a, a passion and a, a strong interest of mine. And Zar is, to briefly summarize it, I guess you could call it a, a sort of spiritist tradition dominant in Eastern Africa, North Africa, uh, but also in parts of the Middle East, uh, in, in Iran. And essentially, it, it, it consists of, of mostly women and the spirit engagement is thought to be with jinn, a, a particular class of jinn who are called zar, and oftentimes they're referred to as as red or ahmar, which is its own kind of class of jinn that crops up even in the Shams al-Ma'arif with the spirits of Tuesday and the spirits of Mars or, or the red spirits. Um, but but this class of jinn in particular is thought to make people sick in almost a classic shamanic sense of someone becomes sickened by a spirit and they go to a doctor, you know, Western doctor, and they can't find out what's wrong with them. And then they'll go to like a traditional Islamic healer who might try some things, but then tell the person, oh, they have a jinn, uh, go see this woman. I can't do anything about it. Uh, go see someone in the tradition. And essentially using music, dance, food, and a kind of initiation as well. These people interact directly through trance and ritual possession with the jinn. Uh, and I, I find this to be, at least in my own mind, like a healthier version of, of what a human jinn relationship could be or has the potential to be. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that uh, Zar is considered controversial by many and is looked down upon by many. But when talking about uh, the nature of, of jinn, and especially in the context of how humans relate to them, I think it's a, a pretty healthy way to look at it. So, so I, I encourage anyone who's, who's curious about them uh, beyond uh, the things that Amina already mentioned, and the way that they might be interacted uh, in a more, what I would call indigenous uh, manner, 
uh, to look more into Zar if they're interested more in like music and dance and, and trance and this sort of thing to check it out. And I, I, I think in that way, as going off of what we were talking about with the dead, that there's this beautiful mixture that happens in Zod, which is one of the reasons I'm bringing it up, wherein the spirits of what are called even Westerners or Khawaja, uh, the foreigners, right, uh, as well as Turkish army soldiers, British army soldiers, M- Muslims from the Arabian Peninsula showing up in these different guises in a very spiritist context, right? These different kinds of masks, these different kinds of personas. And I think that that's important, uh, especially as we're talking about the dead and the way they mix with the jinn and the tenuous place of the dead in Islam, where in Zar, they all sort of form together into this mass of spirit and the divisions between them become less and less clear or people are not necessarily asking those questions. And in this way, the dead mix with the jinn more by likeness rather than this division that we think of as that's a dead human and that is a jinn because the jinn are not thought of to be dead humans. They're thought of as their own kind of class of spirits distinct from angels and human beings, as Amina mentioned, and made of a different substance in that way, as Amina also mentioned. So I I don't know. I appreciate Zar in this blending of qualities that happens through ecstatic dance, through trance, through ritual possession, um, but also the way that jinn and the dead, for our purposes, come up in these different classes of spirits where one of the classes of jinn is even thought of to be the white people who are like Europeans, Khawaja, in this way. Like that is a class of jinn unto itself, the white people who are jinn but also come down like white European looking people. I I, I think that that speaks to the strange levels of subtlety that, that occur with the jinn. But I also, I, the other half of my family is from Yucatan, from Mexico, and we have in the, the Mayan mythology, in the Popol Vuh, this notion of multiple creations. And in the creation before the current one, uh, there were beings who were thought of to be made of wood, and they looked more like monkeys. So the the people who were made of wood, which is a reference to trees, right? And they look like monkeys. Um, these were the beings who were a part, who were the dominant species, let's say, in the previous creation. And in many cultures, what we would call jinn are thought of almost to be like this. Um, I think it's a good example. They're like the wood people, those who still dwell in trees, right? Just as monkeys might be swinging from the tops of trees and are made of the same substance as trees and plants, the kinds, the beings who inhabited the earth or who, um, for lack of a, a better word, dominated the earth before the rise of human beings and in, in the way that we, in the ways that we know it. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense, like totally. the, 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 the other, the other race or the, the previous race, right? Yeah. Yeah, the the jinn are held to predate human beings, and there are occasional allusions to other races of human beings that came before us. We weren't the the first show. Um, But yeah, it is a good analogy, the jinn and deceased spirits. It it, it is said that 
uh, when the human being dies, they, they become uh, more like the jinn because you're not weighted down by the material body anymore. So, you know, you can get your lighter, you can move more exactly. easily or more quickly, maybe not as constrained by time and so forth. You're but I always like thought and more like smokeless fire. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought the issue with czar and, and orthodoxy was a classic issue of gender archetypes. Because there's basically two people get their jinn problems sorted out in the Muslim majority world. I'm simplifying it basically two ways. One is the quote unquote orthodox way, which tends to be religiously sanctioned and is mostly done by men and involves uh, a lot of recitation of scripture and fear of God and, you know, the, the orthodoxy, maybe some prayers and sometimes maybe people would do some other things. And that's more of a guy. Sorry. I was going to say it's a guy thing. I don't know. It, it tends to be done more Offended. by males. So I'm not saying there aren't women who do it, but it's seen more as a male thing. Azar is seen more as a female thing. And men are mystics and women are witches, of course. Uh, and in terms of the gender archetypes, it's more unrestrained. It's not bookish. It's not rational. Uh, you know, it's, it's that sort of archetype of the, I don't know, the wild aspect of femininity, if you will, and that's instead used to channel and deal with these things, even though, of course, men participate in czar ceremonies, too. But that is, in short, what I always thought the main issue is. And I, I, uh, I, think, that's, I, I think that's true. Many of the anthropologists who have studied czar take that line to an extreme, to like a, or a, a secular atheist extreme, wherein they will say that women use this purely as a means of gaining a kind of power, a behind-the-scenes power in the society. You know, the the anthropologists don't, or, or these particular anthropologists that I'm talking about, don't actually believe that they're spirits, you know, in, in this context, but rather the women are using it as a means of gaining power against their husband and this sort of thing. And, and I, I mean, to, to some extent, as Amina was saying, there's like a, a gender dynamic there, absolutely. But I think as I was trying to articulate previously, there's more of this sense of jinn as the other, right? The yeah. other race, the other people, and the way I was describing like the Khawaja or, or the Westerners, the foreigners, the white people. Th those are the people from over there. Those are the people from the other side of the ocean, right? And in the same way, women historically in these societies and historically in general have been considered the the other in that way, yep. the other gender, right? In in counterdistinction to masculine ration rationality and bookish knowledge, as as Amina mentioned. So of course, that's going to come up in this context as well, because when you're talking about jinn, you are talking about the quote unquote other, right? So it is all others. It is the jinn, but it's also the dead and it's also women and it's also people yep. from quote unquote foreign places, right? And I think it's important to look at it with that nuance. That's why I appreciate Zar, because it incorporates that level of nuance. It isn't just like, oh, here are these beings that we have to subjugate. It is, it's so much more multi-layered than that. This has been a joy. Uh, I, should, I feel like I should let you go because we're coming up almost on two hours here. But this has been such a pleasure. Um, before before we close things off, is there a final sort of thing you want to leave people with before 
before we dial down all the the microphones and it all just sort of disappears into time <laughs> we're thinking <laughs> okay we, we, we've traveled so many places you know the gin Aww. the dead the, the sun the moon oh we got uh, to cover a lot yeah yeah and there's still much more that could be covered too i think i'm gonna i'm gonna save my usual line about cultural sensitivity with with the text i i know i covered a lot of that in my mini rant towards the beginning about entitlement and whatnot but i i just think and and i don't i don't hear people when it comes to the context of, of publishing magical books say this that often and i almost wish people would say it more often but i i felt a strong apprehension and in some ways still do on this text being released. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm very much excited about it and happy that this is happening, but I, I do think that it's important to recognize the responsibility around something like this um, and that people are to tread carefully and should have cultural sensitivity around it. And I, I think my apprehension comes from those places of like, oh, but what about all the people who are just going to go into it in this in this totally laissez-faire reckless manner and obviously that can't be the thing that keeps you from from doing a thing those sorts of worries but I, I think it's important for me even for my own sake just to admit that that that's something that I have felt around the releasing of this text that it's something that uh, I I struggle with in my in myself and 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 just to put forward that kind of honesty around it. And and also in my own honesty around that to just remind others to just be careful with it, be good to it, do their due diligence, do a little bit of homework around it if you're not familiar with any of this stuff. I think, I think that's really it for me. Yeah, along those lines, uh, I would say it is good to remember to respect the physical book as in the printed text. Nowadays, we're so inundated with printed material that it's easy just to to devalue it and you know just to cast it aside or put it on the floor or step on it or something. And while I'm sure no one would do that with this sort of book, it's maybe good to return to some pre-modern conceptions of how a text should be valued. You know, even if you think about back in the day uh, when this book came about, people hand copied texts and it took a long time and a, a text was, you know, expensive and valuable uh, for that reason, in addition to the contents. Uh, and so I appreciate that it has been preserved in a tradition like this, uh, that there is a certain metaphysical current associated with it. You know, we, we've had saints and mystics and, and letters and jinn and so forth. So, you know, treat it nicely, like you would treat uh, a gift from a, a rich uncle, for example, a nice <laughs> watch, for example, maybe that was gifted to you. And, and if you don't want it, uh, dispose of it respectfully, maybe give it to someone, give it to a library. Uh, if, yeah. if worse comes to worse and you absolutely want to destroy it, you know, put it in nature somewhere. But, uh, you know, not necessarily treating it casually. I, I think that's a good point to have. Real real quick, because we didn't get to touch on any of the artwork, I just wanted to say to add a little bit of context to the artwork yes, that yes. I did in the text. I had, as, as we were working on it, I had a few people come to me asking about the geomantic associations with the lunar mansions uh, and, and then the letters consequently. And the images that you see for the 28 lunar mansions are a, a, a combination, a, a sigillic combination 
of the lunar mansion itself, of the Arabic letter associated with it, and also certain geomantic associations that have come up, uh, not just in this text, but also in others, um, which is its own fascinating point, of course, in talking about image magic and, and geomancy or ramal. But um, just to add a little bit of context, the 28 images that people see largely come from the unification of these these different aesthetic elements. That's a really good. Actually, I do. I feel like we should talk because they are so beautiful, <laughs> these images. And I feel like we got so wrapped up in talking about the dead and jinn and things like that that we kind of like, like when you were doing this, like, did you, I'm sure there may like a thousand currents coming into your brain at once getting sort of like transmuted into this, but like. Did it feel like an act of translation? Did it feel like an act of creation? Did it feel like both? Did it feel like, like who's talking when you're doing these images? I, I think it's all of the above. And I also, I, I guess in particular, think that it is the, for lack of a better word, spirit of the letters themselves, spirits of the the figures, spirits of the lunar mansions, um, speaking in this it, it, in the way that I come to know things, which is largely through weaving things together or things that might seem a little bit more or less disparate together. And I see it as a kind of weaving. Um, as I was talking about this tapestry earlier, the use of line in calligraphy being the same extension from this dot or, or from the letters themselves, this calligraphic line being the same line as um, you know the, the 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 threading that occurs, the the song lines themselves, even in the the invocation or the evocation of of spirit. So in these in these different elements in these different images, I find the visual art as a as a means of reconciling these disparate elements through through the pen. Which has yeah. its own, which has its own tradition in 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 this tradition, right? Al Qalam, the the pen itself, the the act of inscribing, um, is its own thing here. But yeah, I mean, it's it's largely this weaving together of of different qualities into something which resembles a, a letter itself or, or a new letter, a new sigil unto itself. And I I tend towards red, black and yellow on the white page being these alchemical colors that also being very much rooted in in Egypt and Africa in the Middle East, a combination of these colors. And the book itself is published in this color scheme, um, which is not by accident, of course. So each, each design is its own personal alchemy, right, of the red, the black, and the white, and sometimes the yellow or the gold. Would you recommend that as people engage with this text, because there's so many ways to engage, because it does feel like a text that is so rich and deep, that there's just, there's so many different angles to come at it from to try to like, see if you can get a glimpse of the whole diamond from these multiple facets of it, right? But would you recommend that people, especially with like, say, the talismans and things like that, like, this isn't just a question of like staring, maybe it is, but like staring at or scrying these images, but also like maybe trying to like copy them out yourself, try to sort of follow the strokes of the pen, live in the ghost of that moment or is that not a good idea is that dangerous i'm i'm flattered by that idea <laughs> but that's not what it's about it's not, it's not okay. about my personal flattery i i i think yeah i don't see why not i it's hard for me to tell with things that are more 
you know, emerging from my own personal relationship with the text, whether that will be something that uh, works for other people, I guess, or whether that's something that other people could get anything out of. I would like to think that, yes, seeing seeing these different figures or drawings as a kind of synthesis between the various elements of each lunar mansion, once again, being their letter correspondences, certain geomantic correspondences. So um, if you're looking at a more holistic picture or image of what that uh, mansion can do, e yeah, I, I, I want to say yes. But I also want to say that um, I put them in there to perhaps inspire people to do their own version of that. Mm. as well, right? Especially people who are more artistically inclined, but you don't obviously have to have a, a background in that or whatever. Um, I've had a few people look at the text and be like, oh, this is this is inspiring for my own practice, which I think was more my intention around it, to 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 show people that people don't necessarily have to look at these texts in a in a purely academic or like Oh, well, I have to engage with it exactly as the pictures are laid out in this way. But also you can kind of begin to weave things together yourself, getting more into like a broader perspective on what image magic could be rather than just open up the book and it says carve this image on a Tuesday of the fiery prince at this time and draw a man with flames around his body or whatever. You know, it, it, it's more than just the, the copy repeat. It's it's actually engaging uh, at all of these other levels, which to me um, is how one can begin to speak and hear in bird language in the Mante Caltair, in, in, in poetic language, right? When our when our art and poetry and engagement with this material can begin to soar as as birds do. That's taking taking it on at that imaginal level. That's putting drawings in there is is to encourage this kind of behavior. So the respect for the text and respect for the book as an object should not extend to precluding conversation. Like we Yes. And no, no, that's an important not. point. That's yeah. a really important point. Yeah, also a, a text, especially historically, has been a live thing and a public thing and a, a thing that various people participate in, not just a, you know, a, a sort of dead sheet of words on a paper or, or you know, something locked up in a box. So it, it is definitely reasonable that, yeah, participation and discussion of various types would be part of what has happened to the book and what one would expect to continue to happen in the future. I think it's really hard to have that dialogue if you're not respecting the, the text and the content, right? To to open it up to that level of the imaginal, I, I think the the text might block you a little bit on that if you're coming at it from a, a really gross angle or something. Yeah, don't treat it as food <laughs> for thought. Treat it as a as a as an interlocutor or something like that. Totally. Well, this has been, as I was saying, an absolute pleasure. Um, and I'm going to put a link to where people can buy the book in the show notes to make sure that they do that because they should uh, for their own good and for everyone else's. But where else on, let's say, the Internet should people go to learn more about the two of you, the work the two of you are doing together and or separately into the future or even into the past? Because, I mean, you know, you you come from places in time. You've you've been doing things. <laughs> do we? I, I did weird out my timeless. students the other day by telling them that I was as certain as I could be that they existed, but I wasn't completely certain. And I wasn't quite certain about my own existence either. That's just academic honesty. 
True. I, very true. I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to lie. Certain things Amina has told me that she has said to her students. I'm like, I I don't know if I'd want to be your student. It'd be a little terrifying. Some of Keeps those the class some size. Of the side eyes you <laughs> give them. <laughs> Say something like that and then give them that side eye. I don't Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this is completely off topic, but I did scare one of my students a couple weeks ago because she came in a few minutes late. So I just looked at her like I gave her the look that you get in this profession. And I said, what is time? <laughs> she was like, oh, oh, you know, I've just been so busy and, you know, I'm a few minutes late. And I said, no, what is time? So, so we, we paused and then she started philosophizing on the spot. I'm like, well, she's handling it well. So we talked okay. about what time is for a while. The next week she came in like 15 minutes early and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm late. I'm late. I'm like, no, it's okay. You're not late. We talked about time already. It's fine. Mom, that's Mama the, Saturn over here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. From the book anyway, online, uh, there is a Twitter page uh, called the son of knowledge Shamsul Ma'arif or, or the other way around and it's under the name Arabic underscore underscore magic that's two underscores Arabic underscore underscore magic and we are posting updates about the book and just sharing related material things that other people are there's, doing and so there's an Instagram so there's an Instagram by the same handle with the two underscores as well so it's the same it's the same handle for the Twitter and for the Instagram that's that. That's the primary place where pe- on the the Instagram is obviously more uh, image based, I think, yeah. um, uh, and the Twitter. Uh, Amina has been keeping up on it pretty nicely, posting things from from all sorts of different avenues. But I mean, that's the primary place you can get updates and news. Uh, I think I mentioned it's Revelor Press is the publisher. A big thank you to Jen Zart and, and Al Cummins and Joseph Uccello for their work on the text. You can buy the text from Revelor Press. I know uh, Cooper will post a link. I don't think they're shipping internationally at the moment. You buy that from guy. Amazon. Yeah. People in countries other than the United States should okay. buy it from Amazon. Yeah, so if whatever it's not iteration in your country, you can get it from the Amazon.uk site. Yeah, Barnes & Nobles is also selling it. I think the major booksellers in Revelor Press. Do you know why they're not shipping internationally? I saw something about VAT, but I don't know what VAT is. International shipping's been pretty wonky as of late. I haven't looked into it, but I I know a few people who are not related to any of this stuff at all who have stopped shipping internationally, at least for the time being. Yeah, Mm. VAT is as appealing as it sounds. Uh, In Britain, (laughs) it's the value-added tax. Uh, So I think it's the import fees, uh, which tend to be quite uh, steep. Is that for oh. all all of Europe, though? Um, I don't know how they do it in uh, the rest of Europe, if indeed the UK is even considered part of Europe anymore, since <laughs> the whole Brexit thing. Um, but, but that was what they mentioned anyway. Um, okay. But the, the Amazon option is, is there. I just mentioned that because I know some people were confused uh, when they heard that they were shipping only to the US, and they're like, how do we get it? So that's that's how you get it. I do, I do like the idea of, you know, Magical books um, that they must sort of go through circuitous circuitous routes. That there is a sort of magic that must be done to acquire them now, totally. yeah. um, even if that is because of <laughs> import taxation, which is the least magical thing I can think of. <laughs> yep, um, that's, that's Saturnian magic right there. You know that. <laughs> right, it's the magic of going through hoops. Um, 
which is the the best magic of all, is just sweating a lot and putting in a lot of effort and being <laughs> mad uh, on the internet. Well, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, I just, well done. Well done on this thank book. You. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much to Amina. Thank you so much to Jay. There will be a place in the show notes with a link to where you can buy this wonderful book and also where you can check out Amina and Jay, their respective presences on the internet. This has been Witch Hassle. I have been your host, Simon Luxury, at least for now. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverson, recorded by Edward Lee. If you want to hear that remaining excise little bit of the program, by all means, hop over to Patreon and you can get uh, the parts of the conversation where we talk more about the jinn, we get into the lunar mansions. Um, Amina recites part of a poem from memory. It's, you know, it's there's a lot of good stuff in there for you to check out. And if you just want to support the show, too, you know, people are doing it, and I am shocked and humbled and pleased that, you know, because it can feel like when you do something on the internet that you're just sort of shouting, you know, at the ocean. And so to realize that it's not just the ocean, but actually they're little people on boats, or normal-sized people, but they're far away, so they're, you know, they seem smaller through perspective. I'm getting, the metaphor's kind of getting away from me, but the point is that I'm just really grateful and shocked that people are listening, and they care, and they're supporting the thing. It's a big deal for me, so thank you so much. Um, this has been Witch Hassle. Good luck with the work ahead. the sun and where are the moon